Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Keith Keeley, the Executive Director of the Savannah Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to developing savannah-based agricultural systems through research, education, and outreach. During this interview, we discuss the role of research, citizen science, and traditional ecological knowledge in order to build biome-specific agricultural systems. Throughout, we use the models presented by the Savannah Institute as the basis for the conversation. You can find out more about Keith and the Institute at savannahinstitute.org. If you have any questions after listening to this episode, get in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. Now then, on to Keith. I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and a class announcement. Then, Keith, Mr. Keeley, if you can give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, then we can talk about the work of the Savannah Institute. Okay, sure. Thanks for uh, inviting me to talk with you today, Scott. So I started working with the Savannah Institute, basically born out of my interest in perennial agricultural ecosystems. My path towards that interest took a, a lot of different turns, but uh, I would say it, it comes back to my training as an ecologist and, and recognizing that farms and any agricultural field is an ecosystem, just like a natural or native ecosystem, but that's been heavily modified by human involvement. And understanding farms as ecosystems, you start to see where the ecosystem is potentially functioning very well and, and where we have to do a lot of things input a lot of energy and, and efforts to prop up an ecosystem that isn't fully functioning. So that, I guess, describes it in a nutshell where my interest in perennial agricultural systems came from. And, and that's really what led to uh, me learning about the Savannah Institute and then st- uh, starting to work with the, uh, the farmers who are planting perennial agricultural ecosystems. How did you come to discover perennial agriculture? Is that through your work as an ecologist or through other information that came to you? I think the the first time I was really exposed to to this idea that there are perennial agricultural ecosystems and annual agricultural ecosystems was when I was uh, introduced to the Land Institute in Kansas, which I imagine many of the listeners are familiar with, uh, the work of Wes Jackson and others there to... Uh, design and implement farm systems that are modeled after the native prairie ecosystem that once covered most of Kansas and and much of middle America. And uh, I had an opportunity to to travel there. Uh, This was years ago now um, and learn about what they were doing. And it, it spoke volumes to me about the potential for more productive and sustainable and even just agricultural systems if we took, uh, to, to put it simply, the wisdom of nature and applied it to the way that we farm. With your introduction to the Land Institute and getting to visit and learn more about that work, were you exposed to permaculture at any point along this way, or did you come at it directly from the Land Institute? Their angle is more looking at perennial and polycultural agricultural systems. I I was first exposed to permaculture 
Well, in a, in a couple of places. One, I come from uh, southwestern Wisconsin, the, the Driftless region, which has been a, uh, a home of alternative agriculture throughout many generations, going back to the early soil conservation efforts uh, with Hugh Hammond Bennett and Aldo Leopold in Coon Valley, where they first started plowing on contour, and then it's been a home for organic uh, farming to really take root and expand. And there are also many back-to-the-lander communities, folks from the 60s and 70s and 80s that moved into this area because farmland was cheap and bought land communally. And, and some of these communally-owned lands were formed as permaculture co-ops. And so I got to know some people just in my community growing up that lived on permaculturally-based land communities. In any case, I learned a little bit about it there, although that's when I was growing up and I my interests weren't tightly formed yet. But then when traveling after uh, my undergraduate education and staying on farms in different countries, I stayed on several farms while woofing in, in New Zealand that uh, drew heavily on permaculture principles. So that That's when I started to, to learn about permaculture in, in a little bit more depth. And then with that background in perennial agriculture... How did you come to the Savannah Institute? I started, uh, when, when I returned home from traveling, I thought I would become a farmer. <laughs> and I worked on an organic vegetable farm for four or five years while uh, planting various perennial crops on some of my parents' land. And realized after a few years and, and a lot of mistakes that some of my skills and interests were perhaps better suited to supporting other farmers rather than making a farmstead my primary endeavor. So uh, my orchard still exists, and I, and I visit it and take care of it when I can, but it, it's it's not my primary effort now. I started I started working through, actually, the, the state of Wisconsin's Department of Agriculture in a program to connect beginning farmers with mentors and technical assistants. And I also went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison to do graduate studies in agroecology. And so through my studies in agroecology and my background in supporting farmers in need of uh, technical assistance, it seemed like work with the Savannah Institute could draw some of those things together because really what we're doing is helping farmers who are thinking deeply in agroecological ways to connect with each other and learn from each other and expand the, the possibilities of these perennial polycultural systems modeled after the Midwestern savanna ecosystem. And uh, I guess another strain, too, was I, I've been involved in some efforts using uh, livestock to restore, as a tool to restore savanna ecosystems. So uh, this sort of mishmash or melding of ecological thinking and restoration work with making farms viable, basically, helping farmers find the tools to make their farms work, whether that be financial tools or uh, help with engineering and design or uh, assistance with, with marketing or product development, addressing these individual hurdles that, that farms face and uh, assisting them to get to the next step. When you mention livestock as a tool, for restoring the prairie. Is that through techniques such as mob grazing? Certainly management-intensive rotational grazing. And the stocking densities, which is really mob grazing, turns on adjusting those 
uh, stocking rates and stocking densities is one of the things that some of the people that I've been working with have examined is what are the appropriate methods of stocking animals and rotating them from one area to another to achieve the vegetation management goals that actually improve the the ecological vitality of a system rather than what's been a much more common occurrence throughout much of uh, probably much of North America, which is overuse by livestock that causes degradation of ecosystems. But again, many of your listeners are probably familiar with the myriad efforts to develop restorative uh, grazing systems in many different ecological contexts. And I ask that because mob grazing is one of the things that has been kind of I wouldn't say hot in the area when it comes to livestock, but it's certainly been a warm technique that's being passed around the sustainable agriculture communities here. Sure. And historically, the savanna ecosystem has been maintained by primarily livestock and, I shouldn't say livestock, I should say large animals, wild animals, grazers and browsers from bison to elephants to to antelope, uh, depending on the ecosystem. But these animals plus fire, in many cases, is another disturbance that maintains this mix of of grassland to forest ecosystem types. And the savanna is really a a dynamic ecosystem that's very productive because, again, fire and animals maintain that dynamic equilibrium and keep the, the ecosystem from what scientists call succeeding all the way to a, a climax vegetation type of a full canopy forest, um, which can also be agriculturally useful. But uh, we think of our farms in terms of savannas because that was the dominant ecosystem in this part of the world prior to European settlement and, and farming. Which is in stark contrast to here on the eastern seaboard where it was trees, trees, and more trees. <laughs> And it's interesting. One of the we've been getting interest from farmers on the eastern seaboard as well, as well as out on the west coast, as as our name starts to get out there. And what we've started to do is encourage people in different biomes and ecosystems to to start sister organizations, the Beach Forest Institute or whatever it might be, because the challenges particular to farming systems modeled after individual. Uh, ecosystem types or, or biome types, I think are going to be unique. While there will be some unifying principles, certainly those bioregional networks of farmers, I think are going to be most critical in, in making these farm systems successful. And those sorts of networks already exist. We're not the first ones doing this sort of thing. But uh, we have some specific purposes as well, especially with regards to, to formalized research on these farms. With what you said there about the specific goals of the Savannah Institute, could you share those with us and how you're going about uh, realizing those? Sure. So in a nutshell, our mission is to develop restorative Savannah-based agricultural systems. And we do that through on-farm research, through education to farmers and to the general public and various stakeholders and outreach to those stakeholders, whether they be farmers or policymakers. We, we don't actually do a lot of policy work yet, but our, our vision is to work with people throughout the value chain, from farmers to marketers to consumers, people who are developing 
equipment to make this a, a vibrant agricultural system. And our core work right now is, is with the farmers because that's really where it begins. And so, as I've mentioned, we're developing a network of what we call case study farms, where we're working with the farmers to collect basic information about what goes into these systems, what kind of plants get planted, how are those plants managed, what are the management challenges and the, the ways of overcoming those challenges, what's the financial outlook for systems in, in terms of what are the upfront costs and the maintenance costs and the timelines until a, a financial return and, and what are the different avenues for those financial returns. So trying to look at this both in detail and, and holistically and be uh, a hub for farmers and, as I've said, other parts of the value chain that are interested in an agricultural economy, to use a, a loaded word, that is based on restorative farming systems. It sounds like a very broad research question through your case study programs to take a holistic approach to looking at this. What have been some of the results so far? What are you finding as you walk down this road with your farmers, some of their successes and struggles along the way? Well, uh, the short answer to that is that we're, we're very early on in our research efforts. So uh, there are few sort of conclusive results that I can tell you. But what I can tell you is that um, the farmers we're working with who have their plants in the ground are keeping track of how those plants are growing each year and um, what percentage of the plants are survival. They're recording the, the ways that they're caring for the plants. And, and the big idea is that this is a cooperative effort and, and these farmers are all as passionate as as anyone really, they're probably the most passionate people for wanting to see this succeed on a large scale. So even though many of them right now are, are starting on two or five acres, they've got big visions and they can see the value of everyone um, working together so we don't all have to make the same mistakes twice. <laughs> so while it is a, a sort of a broad approach in, in looking at it holistically, it's really the particulars and the specifics that these farmers are keeping track of, you know, things like what's the best kind of protection from from deer to keep the trees and shrubs that are being planted protected through the, the early years of establishment. It seems like a simple question, but it, if you talk to any farmer who's working on growing tree crops, dealing with ver vertebrate animals that are interested in their trees is, is a major management question. So rather than everybody trying 100 different things, we're looking to build a network of many farms that are trying a few different things, and and we think that that will increase uh, success dramatically. It provides you a diversity of research cases and options then to pull information from? Precisely. For farmers who are working with the Savannah Institute, what kind of support do you provide them? What are some of the options within that program? Yeah, so the way our program is designed is... Uh, we have a, an application process, which can sound kind of intimidating, but what it really is, is it's a series of steps that are laid out to help someone who can, can see the big picture. They want to have on a piece of land that they steward an edible savanna one day, but they aren't quite sure what are steps, the intermediate A, B, and C steps to take to to get to that, that vision, that endpoint. And so... The application process is set up to 
assist farmers as they think through those steps. What are the different things that have to be planned out in terms of how the rows of crops will be laid out on the land and what will be the spacing between the plants and between the rows and and what are the primary crops going to be and we don't provide all these answers for the farmers but we also have a, a network of technical assistance providers and we connect farmers with each other so we help identify what are those questions that are useful to think about and then what are some of the educational and interpersonal or network resources out there to to help address some of those questions for people who haven't really thought through them before. So it's as much about information and research as it is community building between the farmers and the other individuals involved in this program and in the value chain? Yeah, that's right. So, and that community continues to grow throughout the application process. I'm connecting farmers with other farmers when they say, oh, I'm you know, I'm not sure uh, what to think about whether I want to grow pure Chinese chestnuts or hybrid American Chinese chestnuts, for example, based on what the climate is in my region. So I might connect them with a farmer who was thinking through that same question the year before. And then through the year, we have uh, field days and a yearly gathering with all of the farmers. So we're still, like I say, we're young, so we're working out what, what is the best way to build a community of farmers that are spread across multiple states in the Midwest, so that sort of immediate proximity isn't always there. But we have a, a close proximity in terms of uh, a vision of an agricultural system. So we're still figuring out what the best way to build that community is, but that is central to what we're about. As a new organization and relatively young, if someone wanted to create their own bioregionally appropriate Farm Research Institute. What are some things that you've learned along the way that you would suggest to someone? Oh, that's a great question. And I would have to give a, a lot of credit to the board of directors of the Savannah Institute. And I'm in, certainly uh, heavily involved in, in growing the organization now, but I wasn't the founder of the organization. And I think, you know, founders can, can be really important. It can also be really important for an organization to, to become community-owned rather than founder-owned. So I think if someone wants to found an organization like this, they ought to recognize their potential role as a, as a founder leader or uh, other people they work closely with to, to fill those roles. And then start building that community around you. And, and that board of directors, I think, is central for, um, for any organization and finding people with the, the passion for what you're doing, and then the right mix of uh, skills from media and communication skills to financial skills to governance skills, various kinds of interpersonal, interpersonal coordination. All the things that make any organization tick are going to be really important. So just like starting a farm, you have the, the big vision for where you want to get to, but then taking care of those intermediate steps of building an organization is, is really important. And that's going to make the organization both more vital because there's more people's energy um, flowing into it. And it's also going to take some of the, sh the weight off of your own shoulders of feeling like you're the founder and the one that has to, the, the only one that has the responsibility to drive this organization. I should also mention that if it's a, an organization based in farm research, start making those connections with farmers. 
probably you are one, and that's great. But if you're just doing research on your own farm, then that's probably primarily going to be of use to you. So the, the more and the sooner you can start connecting with other like-minded farmers who are practicing in parallel with you in terms of farming strategies, uh, the more you can pool your efforts and build your organization around the needs, the actual needs of farmers rather than abstract ideas about what is needed. Many individuals who I know who come to a path of ecological design or restorative agriculture don't come from a STEM background or a technical background regarding the information and skills that go along with this. What kind of training or education would you recommend to people, um, especially young folks who are just coming up who are interested in a career in doing some kind of regenerative enterprise? That's a great question. So, some of the advice that I've gotten that I've really valued is to receive as broad an education as you can. And that doesn't preclude uh, developing specific skills. Regenerative agriculture in particular requires a diverse set of skills. So it, while it's important to have those diverse set of skills, it's also important to be able to to work in teams and recognize the skills of others. So I think it's going to be different for any person. And so it's difficult to, to say that in particular. There's one kind of training that's, that's really useful for people who, who, who are interested in these sorts of farming systems. I think getting experience on farms is almost always a great education, whether that's working on a farm or interning on a farm, or a program like Woof, Willing Workers on Organic Farms, or whether that's uh, starting your own farming enterprise. And maybe it's small, maybe it's in a community garden. Practical exposure to actual farming systems, there's, there's no real substitute for that. If someone was looking to pursue a STEM education or something more technical regarding this kind of work or research, what's something that you would recommend there? The question of formal education is a really complicated and important one, uh, in part because the increasing cost of a university education is can't really be ignored. And if you have the resources to do that, or you have uh, good support through scholarships or, or otherwise, I found my university education to be very valuable. And so I'm in strong support of that. And for me, the, the scientific field of ecology is, I think, very important to agriculture. And if we're going to make the case to the general public, to society, that these alternative, to use a word, farming systems have value to society beyond the commodities the farm commodities that we're producing, that clean air and clean water and wildlife habitat and vital rural communities are a result of these alternative farming systems, then we need to demonstrate that in a rigorous way. So, you know, universities are organized around ways to rigorously answer these sorts of questions. And so you can become equipped as, as a researcher to point to cause and effect to say, when this farm is upstream, the water looks like this. And when another farm is upstream, the water looks like this. So that being said, 
a formal university education is, is certainly not the only way to become involved in this sort of thing. And many times there are opportunities with community organizations that are doing things like water quality monitoring or farms that are that are interested in hiring people to scout the the insect pests on their farm. So there are multiple avenues into doing research in farming systems. And I think it's uh, it's important and fascinating work. And I think that there'll be there'll be contact information following the show and, and I'm happy to follow up with with any listener that's that's interested in connecting with organizations that are doing farm research because we're just one of them, and and I think it's a it's a field that that needs more bright young people in it. So there is a lot of room within this through various organizations to be a citizen scientist involved alongside of those with a more formal training and education. Yeah, I think it it certainly takes it takes all types. It takes farmers working in cooperation with with researchers. Uh, oftentimes, there's intermediate community members that are very important there, people involved in university extension. And and the, and the other thing that, that I think is overlooked a lot of times is that sometimes the, the most important researchers are the farmers themselves. And there's a, a, a growing appreciation within the academic world for the sort of, you might say, qualitative information or observational information that farmers and communities gather. And many times when working with indigenous communities, this is known as traditional ecological knowledge. But what I've seen is there's there's really an analog for that in working with farmers. And, and there's lots of names for that. People call it practical wisdom. I think the writings of Gene Lodgson are a great example of, it's, it's not formal research, but he's making careful observations and collecting very useful information and sharing it. And, and that's the heart of the scientific enterprise. I appreciate that perspective that you come from in sharing this with us because the idea of a citizen scientist is something that's been explored in this program. I'm on your website as we're talking about this and looking on the case study program page, and it has a picture illustrating the savanna-based restoration agriculture system, showing grasses and vines and a very... Well, for permaculture practitioners, very much a reminder of a food forest. What is the model that you're using with this idea of being a savanna-specific form of restoration agriculture? So the, the model is the savanna ecosystem. And as I mentioned, there's generally a characteristic of the structure of a savanna is a mix of large canopy trees, of various sized trees and shrubs and brambles and grasses and other herbaceous vegetation, as well as vines. And so these tiers of the ecosystem can each be selected. This is, as you've said, very similar to the way uh, many permaculturalists think about the different layers of a food forest. And so selecting crops, essentially, useful plants that can fit within this model of the savanna. And um, no, no two farms, no two operations are going to be exactly the same. One farm may decide that they want their canopy trees to be chestnuts, and another may decide they want their canopy trees to be pecans. 
and another may decide to follow the native uh, ecosystem and the canopy tree may be oak that they plan on using as a, a silvopasture feed for hogs. The exciting th- one of the exciting things about it is that th- there's a lot of different ways to do it. That's also a challenge because it's not it's not a simple system. It, it's a polyculture. So in addition to your canopy trees, you have your medium trees and your shrubs and your brambles. And usually these are all planted in rows. Many times those rows contain multiple different crops. Sometimes a row may have a similar crop or multiple crops of a similar structure. Usually those rows are on a contour, so mimicked after the land. And and many farmers, where it's appropriate for the landscape, are also using key line design as a primary part of their model in order to manage the water on their system and provide their crops with with adequate water. And then many of them are also using an, an alley crop system. So the woody perennials are in rows, and the grass or herbaceous layer of the savanna is in alleys between those rows. On some farms, those alleys contain alfalfa or some sort of forage crop. On other farms, it's asparagus or rhubarb or some other sort of perennial vegetable. So that gives you an idea of of some of the different possibilities for putting together these systems. And if you've ever spent any time in a native savanna, you can see that they they have things uh, like plums and raspberries and currants and grapes. These are all parts of the native oak savanna. And so we're also including some crops that are, are not a part of the native oak savanna, but are something of a swap. Like instead of grapes, some farmers might want to grow hardy kiwi, which is not a native plant, but can be a, a wonderful plant too. So that's, that's really the model for the system, is the savanna. When you say that some things are swapped out, like removing the grape for the kiwi, is that simply to replace something that has that particular growth pattern? a niche or are you looking for a value-added product or to provide a certain ecological service? Well, it's certainly up to each individual farmer. One of the things we don't do as an organization is tell farmers what to do. (laughs) Not only do I think that that is is largely pointless because farmers are usually savvy enough to think for themselves, but really the idea is uh, what I always tell farmers is, is grow what you love. And then we're going to have case studies that have multiple different possibilities. And when a farmer five years down the road comes to us and says, well, I want to grow elderberries, what other crops does elderberry play well with? We'll be able to point to different farms that have tried growing elderberries uh, intermixed with raspberries or with currants or with grapes. And they'll either be able to say, yeah, they go great with raspberries because management is similar or they don't go great with grapes because the grapes climb all over them and smother them and you know some individual farmers already know the answers to these questions but we're trying to develop a network where these answers are available for any farmer who's interested in them creating a polyculture of ideas and answers yeah that's a nice metaphor for it we've covered quite a lot of ground and gone many different directions during this conversation keith Is there anything else that you'd like to add for the listeners before we draw this to a close? Well, I would encourage you to do your your own research and mean research broadly, 
visit farms, read books. There are a number of books that many of your listeners will be familiar with that have been of great inspiration to, to me personally and the farmers that we work with. Restoration Agriculture from Mark Shepard, uh, One Straw Revolution by Fukuoka, uh, Tree Crops, J. Russell Smith is that. These are all people who have been pioneers of this system. And as I've mentioned many times through throughout this talk, we don't want to all make the same mistakes twice, but we do want to, to use the same solutions twice and many times over. And it's going to be different on each farm. The, the other thing I would say is that, as I alluded to early on, I found out that farming was not a primary endeavor for me, but I found a way to be a part of a positive change in agriculture broadly. And so many people in the permaculture communities, I think, understand this and are doing permaculture on a homestead or a non-commercial scale. And I think that's wonderful. However, I would say also that in your professional and volunteer efforts, there are opportunities to help bring about large-scale change in working in commercial agriculture systems as well. And so I would encourage the permaculture community to think big and and beyond uh, your own backyards. And, and I know m many of you are, and, and I thank you for all the efforts that I know many of your listeners are taking in, in their own communities as well. Well, thank you, Mr. Keeley, for everything that you've shared with us today and all the places that we've gone. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And that was Keith Keeley. He wanted me to let you know that the Savannah Institute is still accepting applications to work with farmers who are interested in getting involved with this kind of farm-based research. You'll find more information about that on the case study program page at savannahinstitute.org. In the show notes for this episode, you will also find links to the Facebook page and Twitter account for the Savannah Institute, as well as to the books that Keith mentioned. If you enjoyed this episode, two others I recommend are my interviews with Stephen Herod Buner and Elizabeth Farnsworth. Both of those conversations touch on the ideas of citizen science and what we can do as lay researchers. From this conversation, I liked Keefe's focus on mixing the rigorous quantitative methods of science and research with the qualitative experience of farmers. We can all come together to do this work, gain knowledge, and share it back with our communities. We can find out what is best, what is the worst, and what does or does not work in a given area. Are hardy kiwi or grapes right for everyone, everywhere? No, but coming to have a good idea of this information can help us find just the right niches for those crops and any others that we might wish to select. Similarly, Keefe's reference that farming was not his primary endeavor is another standout point. I'm glad to see the understanding spreading that we all have our own areas of interest and strengths that we can and should spend our time focusing on. Do what you are good at. Do what you love. Along the way, I'll be here to assist you. So please reach out to me if there's anything I can do for you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or you can write to me, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Before we draw things to a close, I would like to let you know about an upcoming class. Since this episode deals with the restoration of the savanna, if you would like to learn more about the practices of restoration agriculture from the author of the book by the same name, Mark Shepard, he is working in cooperation with ecological artisans 
in San Diego, California, to offer a course on restoration agriculture from March 10th through the 14th, 2015. Josh Robinson, a member of this organization and a past guest of the show, brought this course to my attention. He is offering a $50 discount to any listener who registers and uses the code PermaculturePodcast50. You'll find a link to the course in the show notes. Finally, this podcast depends on listener support to stay on the air. I have embraced gift economics as the way to support the show, myself, and my other online permaculture work. If you are in a place to help, I'd really appreciate it. Know that you are keeping this podcast on the air and free for everyone else who is unable to lend a hand. Together, we are spreading permaculture worldwide, including 125,000 unique visitors to the website last year and over 800,000 downloads of the podcast. Together, I want to double those numbers in 2015. Find out how to make a one-time or ongoing gift at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support. Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.